Good. Well, let's turn to Exodus and uh, chapter 32. I will read the first 14 verses, although we will peep at the rest of this chapter as we go on in today's sermon, uh, which is entitled, The Day Aaron Made the Golden Calf. The Day Aaron Made the Golden Calf. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to them, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, 
to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Well, brethren, we are continuing in our series of messages under the theme One Day in the Life of Dash, Dash, Dash. And we've had quite a number of individuals that we have looked at. In fact, this is the 16th individual that we are looking at. And uh, in the book of Exodus, we have seen um, Moses, Pharaoh, Miriam, and last week we looked at the life of uh, Jethro, the father-in-law to Moses, in which we saw an example of an older man who is concerned about the well-being and the future and ministry of those who are younger, as was the case with Jethro and uh, Moses. And we, we, we sought to implore those of us who are older Christians and older believers, older in age and also in maturity, that we should be intentional in looking back and seeing those who are, as it were, coming behind us and deliberately, therefore, seeking to minister into their lives so that they do not uh, fall, they do not hurt themselves, they do not burn out, or whatever else uh, it might be that makes up the occupational hazards of those who are uh, younger in the faith, who those who are young adults, and so on and so forth. Today, as we've already announced, we are looking at Aaron. And whereas Jethro was a very positive statement, uh, Aaron is a disastrous one. Because here was someone who was to serve as priest over uh, the, the people of Israel, and yet at this moment he is caused to uh, come up with a golden calf, to, to come up with an idol and give it to the people of Israel, a nation that uh, ever since the days of their forefather Abraham had never been involved in idolatry. Uh, Abraham was the last. He was an idolater. And the Lord called him out of that life in um, Genesis and chapter 12. Uh, from there we had his son Isaac, and then from there we had his son Jacob, who later was renamed Israel, and then from there you had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of, of Israel that found themselves in um, uh, Egypt, and they were still a very distinct people. Idolatry was definitely not part of their life as a people. And then here is Aaron bringing them to that stage. 
And especially when you think of it, that, that Aaron was actually uh, the elder brother of Moses. He, he was one that uh, surely should not have taken God's people away from where his brother was taking them. Aaron had also experienced the, the entire deliverance of the people of Israel from captivity in Egypt, not as, as a mere spectator. He literally participated in those confrontations between Moses and Pharaoh. Often he was the spokesman who spoke on behalf of God. And what do we have here? The same hero of Israel now bringing in idolatry into the nation of Israel. Sadly, brethren, we are often in Aaron's shoes. That despite what we know, despite what we have achieved in the past, spiritually speaking, there comes that day, like the day that took place in the life of Aaron, when we put on his shoes and under pressure we capitulate, we yield, and we sin grievously against the Lord. Grievously. But thankfully, through the intercession of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved from ultimate doom. So the example of Aaron here is one that we ought to heed, one that we ought to use as a mirror in front of our own eyes and say to ourselves, is this me? Is this where I am going? And to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from going that way. What do we learn from this one day in the life of Aaron? First of all, it is this. That people who surround us will often press us and tempt us to sin against God because of their worldview. Their worldview. And that's what happened here in the very first verse of Exodus and chapter 32. We read there that when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods! Who shall go before us? As for this man, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We've already given you the background as to why Aaron was the man they went for. He was closely associated with Moses. He had participated as a leader in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so in that sense, he was a marked man among them. And they came to him to pressurize him that indeed 
he might do exactly this. Make us gods who will go before us and so forth. And basically, that's what he ended up doing. What caused such a man to do what he did? Well, first of all, it, it is the, the pressure of numbers, the pressure of numbers. Notice here, we are told the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, in the English, you don't quite capture the fact that this gathering together to Aaron was actually a, a, a negative gathering together. It was a, a, a sort of insurrection that is coming up on his hands. That's what caused him the pressure. It's more or less what would have taken place with Pilate when the Lord Jesus Christ was brought to him to be sacrificed. And uh, he, to save his skin, he was willing to have Jesus crucified even asked for a bowl to wash his hands. He knew in his heart of hearts that uh, this man is innocent. But it was the pressure that was threatening to bring about um, a, a, an insurrection. And obviously, he would pay for it if that happened, and so forth. So this is the kind of situation that you have here. The people were, were getting more and more frustrated. The verse we, that we just read says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. Now, who said he had delayed? Whose timetable were they following? Did God say to them that Moses would only be up here for 10 days and now he's been up there for 10 months? No. Or perhaps you may say, well, perhaps they were running out of food and, and were beginning to get anxious. There was nothing like that. God was indeed providing them with food. So, really, this delay was simply out of their own making. They, they, they were married men, they, they, they were having children, they were relating with family and friends, and the, the social life was still going on. So what is this delay all about? It's in the mindset. It's what they themselves wanted to do. They were conscious of the fact that there was a journey in front of them a journey to the promised land, a journey across the Jordan, and hey, come on quickly, come back, Moses, so that we can continue our journey there. No regard whatsoever to the fact that ultimately timing is a sovereign act on the part of God. Got nothing to do with us. He is the sovereign one over these issues. You will soon see the importance of that. But it was the pressure with respect to numbers. But also, often, it is simply the length of time that wears us out as well as individuals when 
individuals are having a negative effect, a negative impact upon our lives. It is for how long they continue speaking to us. Now, in this particular case with Aaron, uh, we don't know for how long they would have been saying to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. We don't know how many days that these words were being spoken to Moses, or rather to Aaron, over and over and over again until finally he just said, okay, okay, let's do this. So that he could perhaps have some level of van, uh, sanity. And it's true that time often makes us do what really we knew we ought not to do. It wears away our resistance when we are listening to the same thing over and over and over again. If you have a place at home where water drips from perhaps your roof onto concrete, and I mean concrete, made out of real cement and uh, some crushed stones, it will amaze you that a hole is beginning to be formed. By what? By water. Water. How? Oh, simple. Because that drip has continued perhaps for over a year. Just drip, 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 drip. And before long, a hole begins to form in concrete by mere water. Oh, another obvious example we can think about is how Samson, in due season, gave his secret of strength to Delilah. You remember, she would come up with, hey, tell me the source of your strength, and he would trick her. Uh, she does something that he says, and sure enough, when the Philistines come, he's able to tear those uh, uh, ropes away as though they were just cobwebs and beat up the Philistines. Second, same thing. Third, same thing. Uh, but she kept at it. She kept at it and even began to whine about it. Oh, you don't love me. If you really loved me, you wouldn't be making me a fool in front of my tribesmen. And on and on and on and on and on. Finally. Okay, okay, okay. The secret is in my head. We know what happened after that. Disaster came. The point is, again, it's not just the number of individuals, but the number in terms of time. The constant dripping, the constant repetitions that often finally make us yield. And often as a church elder or a church pastor or an older Christian or a friend, when you go to listen to a Christian who has ended up sinning against the Lord. When you listen to the story, 
you will often find that it is exactly what was happened to Aaron. First of all, it is being surrounded by worldly people, sometimes religious, yes, they go to church, but their thinking is worldly. Another example is to do with getting married, isn't it? They go to church, yes, but they start telling you that you are missing the train. Hmm? You are now, what, 30 years old? And you are still not married? You, 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 you are missing timing. And again, this is the point. This issue of delay. It can be the same with the workplace. By now you should have been promoted. What are you still doing in this position? And so on. And you, you, it begins to work away at you in terms of your, your role that I'm, I am but a creature. God is the creator. He's in, in charge of all things. You, you, you begin to yield because you are listening to these stories that are telling you that this is the time you're going beyond that time. Like most packages these days in shops that you were best before and the date has gone past already. And you begin to listen to them. And perhaps again it's that they are a crowd around you. They, they, they beat you with respect to numbers. It's the home in which you live. It's the team that you play with. It's your office mates in terms of numbers. And they just overwhelm you because of their sheer numbers compared to you. You begin to think, perhaps I'm just not thinking right here. They, they, they can't all be wrong. And you begin to yield because of the numbers. And then also, as I said, it can be because of time. Because it may be one person, but you are with that person so often. And that one person is always telling you that you've gone too far with your religion. You've gone too far with your Christianity. You've gone too far with your strictness. Over and over and over again. Until finally, you do exactly what Aaron did. That's what often brings us to this stage. That when others come to see the height from which you have fallen, they say to you, now, how? How? As is the case here. This was your brother who did this major work. He's the one who's going to meet with God. You work together in this deliverance. And so how on earth do you introduce idolatry among God's people with this kind of background? Well, the truth is, you were listening to the wrong crowd. I'll come back to that in my conclusion. Sadly, as believers, and even as church leaders, this is what finally makes us yield and sin against God. What a sad day it was. Verse 2. Verse 2. If it was possible to take an eraser 
and erase these next few verses. Not out of the Bible, but out of history. One would wish you could do it. But it's there, set in concrete. So Aaron said to them. Verse 4. And Aaron received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Halfway through verse 5, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And in response to that, they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. What a disaster. What a disaster. When, when Moses came back from the mountaintop and confronted Aaron, the way he put it, it was as if this thing just happened. You know, it just happened. Uh, look at verse 21 to verse 24. Verse 21 to verse 24. And Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? I mean, how did they bewitch you? How? Aaron. It doesn't make sense that a guy like you should do a thing like this. How? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Up to that point is correct. Now listen to this. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire. And poof, out came this calf. That's all I did. Huh? I, I just took this gold that they were telling me. And then they brought to me, and then I just threw it in the fire, and eh, it happened. Now, we may be very quick to, to laugh at Aaron, but I've listened enough to confessions of sin by people who should know better. And often you find that it just happened. There was this pressure and pressure and pressure. And then, you know, he just invited me to his home. And then I, I went there and bam, it just happened. It just happened. It's when you begin to ask very clear questions. Straight questions that you begin to see that the person who should know better was acting
actually a knowing accomplice to the sin. As was the case with Aaron here. He spent time fashioning this thing into what it became. It wasn't just that it just happened. No. It had begun long ago. And somewhere along the way, you began to play along. You knew where this thing was leading. And you began to play along. And at a certain point, you realized, I've crossed the line. I've crossed the line. We might as well remove the bricks and go all the way. And that's what happened to Aaron here. It wasn't just that the calf was made. He actually now even put an altar in front of it. That's what the story tells us here. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. In other words, this calf could now see the priests that would be bringing animal sacrifices in front of it. He built the altar. He was a knowing accomplice. He even made the proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It didn't just happen. He even participated in the decision-making process concerning that final event. The party. The party. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Can you imagine how far down the mountain they ended up coming to. Why? It's the devil's lie. It's the devil's lie. You see, the devil has this saying, which obviously isn't in the Bible, but I'll give you the background to it, and it says you might as well hang or be hanged for a sheep than for a lamb. Now let me explain the background of that. Many years ago, when this was a phrase in, uh, in, in Europe, it was because uh, the, the penalty, if you were caught sheep stealing, was death. You were hanged if you were caught sheep stealing. Now, here is the problem. It doesn't matter how old the sheep was. So, even if it was a lamb you stole, a lamb just born yesterday, the moment you were caught, you were hanged as if you had stolen 100 sheep. So, here is the logic. If I am going to hang, the day I'm caught, if I'm going to hang, 
And yet, all that happened is that a, a small lamb escaped out of the sheep pen, and I looked and looked, and there was nobody, and I grabbed it and made a run for it. But I know that the day I am found out, there will be a noose around my neck. Well, I'll tell you what. The next day, if I find sheep, I'll steal. After all, it's the same penalty. And that's the kind of logic that the evil one brings to us. It is what you have done already is sin. So why stop here? In making this golden calf, you've already caused idolatry in Israel. Therefore, just go all the way. Throw away all caution to the wind. You might as well now just do everything because you will have the same penalty in the end. That is what has turned churches into discourse. Because people, church leaders, have said, okay, we've already begun to go this way. So what should stop us now? Let's just go all the way. This is often what causes individuals to get married to unbelievers. They say, well, we've already slept together, so I've already sinned. I might as well go all the way and get married to this unbeliever. It's the same logic that Aaron was now processing in his own mind. I have already taken the steps that are going in the wrong way. Why stop here? Because I've sinned against God. God is already angry with me. I know it. So why stop? I might as well just keep going. That's what explains how Aaron reached where he reached. He took the first few steps knowingly. He yielded to the pressure. He capitulated. And then he did his math and concluded, let's just go the whole way. When we sin like this, we incur the wrath of Almighty God. We do. We do. As I hope to show you, sin is serious. But also, thank God, when we sin like this, Christ intercedes for us. And this is what is pictured so well in those last two paragraphs, verse 7 to verse 10 and verse 11 down to verse 14. First of all, verse 7 down to verse 10. The seriousness of sin. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, I hope you've noticed this. Strictly speaking, that's not correct. Go down, 
For my people whom I brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's correct. Because ultimately it was God who, whose people they were. It was God who with a mighty arm rescued the people. Moses corrected the Lord, by the way, in verse 11. Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? But it wasn't so much that God was wrong. It's an expression of anger. You know what happens in, in between married couples eh? when, when their <laughs> older child yeah, has done something wrong. Eh? When a son has uh, impregnated another uh, family's daughter, and the man comes home and he's saying to his wife, Your son, have you heard what your son has done? Your son. But if he's done very well in school, have you heard what my son has done? Have you? Had good grades, my son. Must be my genes. It's the anger that is being expressed in that expression. Your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, what have they done? Well, basically, they've sinned. That's it. They've sinned. But God goes into some level of detail to show the nature of sin. First of all, it is a corruption. And so we read in those words, they have corrupted themselves. They have done that which is not healthy and hygienic and good for themselves. No, they have done that which is corrupt, which is warped, which is awful. It's also sin is a turning away from God's command. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. Ultimately, that's what sin is. When we stop asking ourselves the question, what does God expect of me? And we are now simply asking ourselves the question, what is it that I want and I want now? Well, it's obvious you, sin, you soon sin against him. Obvious. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. That's what they've done. And ultimately, sin is idolatry. You, you, you move God out of the picture, and instead you put whatever else it is that you have put there. That's how God responds to these people. He recognizes, he disowns them, he recognizes their sin, and then he speaks about what he wants to do. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation for of you. 
In other words, I want to send all of them into complete destruction and replace them with an obedient people. An obedient people. A stiff neck. Oh, that we might realize God's view of our sin. God's view of our sin is terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible in his sight. And his anger threatens to consume us. We must never think that because I am a Christian, God has become like a, a, a grandfather to me. That I'm, I'm messing up his suit and he's just going, Sin is serious. Let me say it again. Sin is serious. If you haven't heard it one more time, sin is serious. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God is just. He must punish sin. That's the point that's being made in this text. But thankfully, as I've said to you before, Moses is a picture of Christ. Is a picture of Christ. And we see this coming out as he begins to plead with God to intercede on behalf of the Israelites. He uses three arguments. The first argument is that these are your people, O oh God. You have redeemed them yourself. That's the first argument. Oh Lord, why, verse 11, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? They are yours. They are yours. And they are where they are now because you have saved them. His second argument is the glory of God. The glory of God being at stake. He uses obviously a human argument here because that's the whole point so that we can understand. And here is the argument. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. It's your glory, O oh God, that is at stake. If you snuff out the church, if those whom you have redeemed by your mighty power end up roasting in hell, the message is that you failed. You felt, in fact, more than that, that you were malicious. You simply brought them out so that at your own place, which you really nicely prepared, you would bang, finish them off. What does that do 
to the name of God. The third and last argument, the third and last argument, is that of God's faithfulness to his covenant. God's faithfulness. Lord, you are faithful. Verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. God, you made the promise. You are faithful. These are the arguments that our Savior would obviously use in a different strata, obviously, than at a human level. Because he always lives to intercede for us. How these work out as intercessions between our Savior and our God, especially when we sin against God, we do not know. Because it's God who gave them Moses. And it's God who tells Moses, go down and see. God knowing very well that Moses would speak to him. There's no accident with God here. If he would have wanted to consume them, it would have happened just as they were parting while Moses was up there on the mountain. He would have unleashed fire upon them and consumed them all. He didn't. He is a gracious God. Sin is serious. God is gracious. Before I move on from this point, I want to add the fact that it's it's a very delicate balance that we need to maintain as believers. God is gracious. God is gracious, but sin is serious. And even when God relents, as was the case here, verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bring on his people, He still chastised them so that they know that sin is serious. Look at what happened in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, O God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from, the, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you, notice this, kill his brother and his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 
3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. An atonement was made for them, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you've seen the great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. But I'm interested in the last verse, verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people. Why? Because they made the calf. Which one? The one that Aaron made. The point is this. Sin is serious. God is gracious. We must never think, because I'm a child of God, I can play with sin. After all, Jesus died for me. After all, I am going to heaven. Well, friends, there is such a thing as the Lord disciplining his people. Disciplining his people. Chastisement. That's the picture that we are being presented here. So that we may never think that God's covenant with his son means we can play with sin. Don't, 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 a thousand times don't. Because God will discipline you. God will discipline you. We don't know how he will do it. But when he does it, you yourself will know that my sin has caught up with me. That's what we learn from Aaron on the day that he made the golden calf. As I said, we are seeing ourselves in this mirror. When under temptation, we capitulate, and in the process, we sin against the Lord. A few quick words of application and I close. First of all, who are you listening to today? Who are you listening to? Who are your close friends? Whose company are you keeping? Which WhatsApp groups are you in so that every day you are listening to what they are saying? Who are you listening to? You keep worldly people close to you. You do it. And one day, you will sink like lead down to the depths of the ocean bed. All because of the numbers that you were listening to and the consistency of listening to people whose worldview is unbiblical. Who are you listening to? Oh, I plead with you to cut off those relationships. For the sake of your own soul, surround yourself with godly men, godly women, those who fear God and you know they are serving him. Make them your bosom friends. 
for the sake of your own soul. Don't cause yourself to sin and your family to sin and, and, and your church to sin because of you. Don't! Keep the right people around you. We've had too many casualties in the life of the church because of keeping wrong company and finally yielding to pressure. Too many Samsons that are now a shadow of their former self under the chastisement of God because of hanging around Delilah. Hanging around Delilah. Secondly, sadly, stubborn sin may be evidence that your professional faith is false. That's what was true with most of these Israelites. It was one sin after the other. One sin after the other. I'm sure you've read this. As you've made your way through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, all the way to Deuteronomy, somewhere along the lines, God finally swore, forget it. None of these guys are coming in. None of them. Especially when they revolted, when Joshua and Caleb with the other spies came home. And the other spies were saying, let's not attempt to go in there. We'll be eaten away. Those guys are like uh, giants. We'll be like grasshoppers to them. Despite Joshua speaking and Caleb speaking, there was a revolt. And God said, fine, you want to stay here? Here you stay and here you die. Let me ask you, are you the kind of person who every time you are face to face with the word of God versus what you want, you go against God's word so that you get what you want? Because I want to assure you that that's evidence that Christ has not yet saved you. And the least you can do for yourself is to cry to Christ that he may save you. But one more word, and with that I must close. Perhaps we were once an error. Under pressure, you capitulated. You sinned against the Lord. And since then, you've been licking your wounds. My plea is, look up to Christ and his intercession. Yes, don't downplay your sin. Don't make it look as though you just threw some piece of gold in the fire and poof, out came a cow. Own your sin, every bit of it. But look at him who is at the right hand of the majesty on high speaking to him on your behalf, showing his blood and saying, yes, he sinned, but I died for those sins. Let that encourage you 
to say, I blew it once, I will not blow it again. Out of gratitude to a savior given to you by God, commit yourself to make the devil a laughingstock. The devil a laughingstock. Because of a resolve in your soul that now you will live for the Lord. You're going to fly all your flags high to your dying day. Amen.